For great-looking T-shirts, hoodies, and sweatshirts, the TNT Shop is now open at tntradio.live. Geopolitical commentator and investigative journalist, you're listening to Pella Neuroth-Taylor on today's News Talk TNT. TNT. Yes, hello. Welcome to my show, and I'm about to uh, make a short intro and say words that I hoped I'd never say. And it's about war in Europe. Um, let's start off with some of the background. Or um, I'm here in Sweden, where the newspapers have been absolutely deluged with uh, war propaganda, which is something the Swedes haven't heard for hundreds of years. Um, and you know, um, psychologists are supposed to say that um, if you're faced with a liar or a bad guy, you don't look at his face because he's in control of his face when he lies. But you look at his digits, his fingers or his feet, if he taps his feet, um, then there's something going on. And and Sweden is sort of like the feet of the US empire. It's a peripheral country. And there's a lot going on here. It's interesting because um, the British and American mainstream media are largely calm um, since Christmas or since New Year over uh, the Russian-Ukrainian conflict. They're running softer stories and obviously the um, Israeli Gaza war is taking much, much prominence. But there's even time for a very nice front page story on the uh, coronation of the new king of Denmark, for instance. So there's a lack of concern or a lack of um, tension. But if you look at the, the this peripheral part of the Swedish uh, US empire, Sweden, um, there's a lot of lot of uh, lot of anger and and fear in the newspapers, and the government ministers are telling Swedes to prepare for war. Now, I think it's somewhat inept actually because it sort of comes out of the blue, and um, uh, some Swedes are uh, interviewed and say, "Well, they can't be serious," you know. But I suggest we because the risk of war is existential for the planet. It's something that we can't afford to dismiss too easily. Because it's almost as if um, Swedish ministers, who are a young, quite inexperienced lot, you know, men with uh, shaved heads and trendy beards sort of thing. I don't think they've been in government before. It's almost as if they've assembled at some Air Force base somewhere in, in Ramstein or whatever you want to call it and, and had the marching orders from their NATO overlords. Sweden hasn't joined NATO yet, but it's in the antechamber of NATO. So they've spilled the beans or they're preparing Sweden always being an organized country. They're preparing their populations for something that the British populations and American populations we will be prepared for later. So it's something to keep an eye on what's going on in Sweden. Now, um, the background could be that um, the um, it's not only the Swedish press, although I think it's it's the strongest here. Um, I think that's in Germany's biggest tabloid built. Um, there was a recently released paper by the uh, German Ministry of Defense saying we should prepare for a war in late 2024, early 25. And even the Daily Mail ran an article, but they're always very alarmist. But I mean, it's not in the main main British press yet. Now, what they're saying is that the Russians might use their exercise in, in Belarus, which is an ally of Russia, to start a war at the end of this year. Uh, they're saying that the Russians might... Um, use the pretext of the fact that there are many Russian speakers in the Baltic states. I mean, there are 20 or 30% of the population leftovers from the Soviet Union to create an incident justifying invasion of the Baltics. And they've talked about uh, a Russian invasion of the what's called the Suvalki Gap, which is 
that territory that lies between the Russian province of Kaliningrad, which is on the Baltic Sea, used to be the German city of Königsberg, and it was given to the Russians in 1945. And it's literally, it's an enclave, it's exclave, it's separated from the Russian motherland. And uh, although there are transition rights or there are transport rights across Lithuania, uh, the Russians are said to want to reunite it to the motherland physically and use an invasion of Lithuania to make that point. Now, um, the problem with these claims is that if you are an anti-NATO, if you're a NATO skeptic and, and, and doubt their motives, and there's every right to doubt them, I mean, because of the, the risks are so high of whatever happens, we, we should hold our leaders and our institutions accountable. The risk is that they'll use the pretext. Let's say they'll try to rein the Russians in by bigging up, let's say the Russians have normal exercises in Lithuania, um, in Belarus every year, and they'll be looking closely. And if the Russians are behaving in any way out of turn, NATO will pounce on that and, and create, put pressure on the Russians. Similarly with Kaliningrad, uh, the local Lithuanians who are very aggressive could create a stoppage there. And then the NATO might warn Russia and Russia will push back and so on. So the thing is about war is any side can escalate the tensions. It's not bad guys versus good guys in these things. It's it's about control and power and who controls things. Um, the Tucker Carlson, who's probably the world's most famous uh, non-mainstream journalist, warned that he didn't think the US election would take place this year, or if it took place, it would be the results would be cancelled because Biden would launch a war, create a pretext for a war with Russia and placing the US in extraordinary circumstances. So if Trump is set to win, which he looks like after his victory in Iowa, um, he could be deprived of his victory because of this war with Russia. Now, the um, Indian candidate Ramaswamy, who left the race yesterday or this morning, said on Twitter, I think, that he talked to hundreds of Iowans who were convinced that uh, the deep state wouldn't allow Trump to win the election and that they would create some pretext. The question is whether this is it. It might sound paranoid, but as said, in these existential questions for the future of the world, we can't afford not to be paranoid. My first guest is the excellent Center for Anti-NATO Opposition in Sweden, Anders Rumelfrö. He runs a very good website, and he will talk to us after the break. This is TNT Radio. Conversations to inform and include. It's meant for everyday people to understand. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Hi, Anders. Um, I've read your website for a long time, and it's a it's a fantastic source of information and written, very well written, and you've done it for a long time. You retired as a professor, medical professor, and now you're devoting yourself full time to NATO opposition in Sweden. What does it make you feel that Sweden is now in the conflict zone? Both you and I have lived a whole life where Sweden was hundreds of thousands of kilometers away from any conflict whatsoever. And now suddenly there's all this news in Sweden designed to raise the alarm. Sweden has actually been a neutral country for over 200 years since the beginning of the 19th century. And it has uh, had a good renomé for this. Sweden has supported, for instance, uh, the anti uh, colonization, the liberation of earlier colonial powers on one hand. 
The prime motor for this was um, uh, the prime minister Olof Palme. He uh, supported ANC in its liberation South Africa, the Palestinian movement, etc. And on this, on the other hand, he also was an anti-communist and made strong statements towards communism. Uh, public opinion polls has shown up to the previous two years that around one third only, only one third of the population were favoring uh, NATO uh, membership. I mean, the neutrality has shown, uh, has had very good results. Sweden didn't have, hasn't participated in any wars in over 200 years except for in recent years where Sweden has supported NATO in Libya and the United States in Afghanistan. Uh, but it changed gradually for over 20 years with a very strong final change in support of NATO. Sweden in 1994, for instance, initiated cooperation with NATO through part part Partnership for Peace. 2014, Sweden became a member of the so-called enhanced, enhanced Opportunist Partner with NATO, which gave, gave Sweden a privileged opportunity for further partnership. Sweden supported NATO in its uh, a war against Libya, destroying uh, Africa's, uh, so to say, uh, the country in Africa with the then highest uh, uh, um, condition. Standard of, of living. living. Standard of living, thank you, for Pelle. In 2016, one step further was taken. Sweden signed a host country agreement, which allowed NATO to uh, have troops in uh, Sweden. A public opinion poll at the same time showed that the majority of the Swedish population supporting any, each of the political parties in the parliament were against it. But there was no real public support of it. The thing which changed it finally was uh, uh, Russia's attack on Ukraine and the way it was reported in the, the, uh, the media. Uh, nothing was said, for instance, uh, uh, about the coup d'etat in uh, Ukraine to, on 22nd of February 2014, uh, which was supported by the European Union and USA. Uh, Ukraine has uh, had a long history together with uh, Russia and Soviet Union, been part of the country for a few hundred years, even. Secondly, Can I just stop you, stop you there. Sorry. Yeah, I, perhaps um, I'm talking too much. Um, yeah. No, no, but it's okay. It's fine. I mean, SVT is a Swedish uh, state television, and they're always attacking Russia for its propagandistic media and their state TV. And in every SVT article, they say all our journalism is impartial and neutral and objective. And yet day after day, they run these articles about war 
and that only take a very one-sided perspective from the uh, in the war. Do you think the Swedish television are true to their mission, or are they just not good? Are they propagandistic? I, I would say, yeah, I think they are not propagandistic. Uh, the Russian views are not reported or they are uh, distorted. Uh, one another so to say factor which obviously made Russia uh, feeling provocative provoking was uh, the expansion of NATO in several countries along the borders of Russia and the establishment of military bases there. This has uh, so to say been promised by leading European politicians over several years. This has been more or less ridiculed in Swedish media. It's not mentioned. The Minsk agreement is not mentioned. That was a United Nations supported agreement. It was very strongly supported by Russia, according to which eastern part of, of um, Ukraine, Donbass, should have a greater so, um, sovereignty within Ukraine. Putin supported that for many years. And then Sorry. lastly, I must just I think... I will say that uh, Russia sent a letter, as you know, uh, to NATO and to the United States requiring increased security and based in that on text in various international agreement that was just turned off by NATO and the United Nations. Also, the attack was, uh, yeah. was, cannot be accepted uh, with regard to the United Nations rules. It's very obvious that Russia was provoked, and this is not at all discussed in any way. It's the, the general... The UK and US media, the alternative, some of the alternative media, um, there's a guy called John, Professor John Mearsheimer and the Institute mm -hmm. of Statecraft, I think, and they're very good sources for the alternative view. So actually hundreds of thousands of Brits and Americans, although they're the chief hawks, chief members of NATO, are there is actually dissent in those countries, Anglo countries. But in Sweden, it's which has this history of neutrality, it's as if this history of objectivity and coolness under crisis has, has disappeared and how it's funny how opinion changed so quickly and i saw somewhere that of all countries sweden is the most willing to sacrifice itself in war with russia i mean that's an incredible contrast for this country that's a byword of peace and nobel peace prize in neighboring norway so sweden's for an older generation is synonymous with peace and suddenly you have this nation of people who are willing to die for 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 ukraine why, why can't Swedish television just run a, a debate in English or subtitled with John Mearsheim, who's a kind of respectable professor of international relations? You know, you couldn't call him a Putin agent. And let's say Carl Bildt, who was the former foreign minister, and let them have it out. I mean, what's the, what's the harm in that? Because on any issue, there's always two sides, isn't there? It's not one-sided. We'll carry on talking about uh, the, the Swedish transformation into a nation of hawks or... Um, after the break, this is TNT Radio.
TNT's Darren Denslow. Yeah, I'm talking about the illness. Actually, that has done, has been doing the rhymes. Not have we only seen a, uh, a mass influx of people waving their COVID tests online. Look, I got a red line. It's like, oh my God, people are still testing. Or people, you know, trying to encourage others to wear their masks. Um, but there has been a talk of a dry cough. There have been doctors coming out saying we've seen loads of cases of that. Uh, have you been suffering from, you know, a bit of cough and flu or cold? Well, Darren, I, I, I just I just did my eighth test, oh, and okay. um, I, I'm just going to keep doing it until I get lines and lines. Why? Well, because work's coming back up, isn't it? Digging deeper with D.D. Denslow on today's News Talk TNT. Affordable housing, we can build that. Sustainable housing, we can build that. At MIT Modular, we understand the importance of housing for all and the importance of design, cost, and functionality. Our goal is to meet the needs of our growing population by converting shipping containers to livable units. If you're like-minded and in a position to invest in something meaningful and life-changing, we want to hear from you. We are a team of professional architects, engineers, and financial and tax experts dedicated to offering unique solutions that provide a brighter future. Our Opportunity Zone Fund offers investors both real estate and operating business diversification, five-year tax deferral on capital gains, annual tax benefits, and ultimately tax-free appreciation potential. There are Opportunity Zones all over America. If you're interested in learning more about our services, need affordable housing, or want to participate in creating a new vision for tomorrow, give us a call in the U.S. on 385-985-5702 or read more at MITModular.com. MIT Modular. We can build that. Today's News Talk Radio. I do a lot of streaming radio. I do a lot of free streaming. TNTradio.live. Hi, I'm Pelena Roth-Taylor, and uh, we're talking about Sweden's accession to NATO. And uh, we're talking to Anders Wimmelfer, who's a retired professor and runs, I'd say, the most prominent website at which NATO oppositionists gather. So it's a very important source of discussion and reading. You often translates articles from English, which are then read by people who didn't read English normally. And so you are a, a, quite an important person. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about what NATO opposition there is in Sweden, because I went along to demonstration and there were like eight people turned up. <laughs> you know? And I'm older than well, you are, of course. But I mean, I remember in the 1980s, there were all these things like Norwegians and Swedish cities were turned into nuclear-free zones and hundreds of thousands of people marched down from Stockholm to Paris. And you had this, in England, you had the Green and Common uh, protests where, where women, feminists, who I think are totally heroic, uh, trying to break into this uh, cruise missile base in Berkshire and uh, Private Eye, an English satirical magazine, made fun of them. But And I laughed, we all laughed, but I think in, in retrospect, they, they did a really good thing. And um, we had churches and schools were talking about peace uh, almost every day. You know, I remember I was at school in Sweden for a brief time and and we were taught we had peace doves on the wall, you know, that we had to do during our drawing lessons. And now the mood in Sweden is very different. Uh, the, the newspapers talk about uh, have articles with young girls instead of saying, I, I believe in peace. I'm prepared to die for my country. You know, why? 
Well, first, you could tell us what what happened to the Swedish NATO opposition. Why is it so hegemonic, the discourse now in Sweden, for a country that says it's the world's best democracy? And secondly, I wanted a little bit to talk about, because some of the cle- some clever lawyers and journalists, people going to try and stop Sweden's accession to NATO, which is briefly held up because Hungary hasn't said yes, and neither has Turkey. They're, they're saying that um, the Swedish accession is actually not legal. It goes against the basic law of Sweden. So first, tell us a little bit about the why why the opinion is so hegemonic, and, and then a little bit about what clever people are doing in a legal way to stop NATO membership from happening. Uh, it's not so hegemonic. Two years ago, it's true that around 35% of Swedes supported NATO membership in public opinion polls. In the recent ones, 62% did so, a doubling, which means that 38%, 3 million Swedes, don't support it. We uh, formed a network uh, for information about NATO soon uh, uh, after the starting change in Swedish NATO policy in the spring of 2022. We are arranging meetings, we are are distributing leaflets. But, uh, and we are met with interest, not least among immigrants, but there is not a surge. It's not a lot of people coming to other demonstrations, uh, said to say. Now, it's uh, even more important, I hope we'll get some time to talk about that, to uh, study and inform about the recent um, defense cooperation agreement with the United States, which will allow the United States, uh, the uh, war nation more than any other since the Second World War, to uh, uh, have, when they will, up to 17 military bases in Sweden. All wow. the military bases, and that's even more important. That was this. Um, uh, uh, that was a this, uh, this, uh, decision recently without any debate. And Incredible. The strong, as you said, is that there is. It's very difficult to in uh, present a different opinion in the Swedish established media, which is very heavily concentrated. We have tried and it's very difficult. But uh, the organization Network Against NATO, it exists. It's activity a few times every week in Stockholm. And on Thursday, we will have a meeting to discuss uh, to form opposition about the defense uh, uh, cooperation agreement, writing letters. How many people turn up at these meetings? Sorry, how many people turn up at these meetings of your network? Too few, around 150, 200. uh, So there has not been a, a growth 
så att säga, in, in uh, the active manifestations against NATO, said to say, I, and uh, that's a, a source uh, to discuss. People has more, have more or less accepted the situation and uh, they all the time have uh, get information about uh, uh, the war in Ukraine and about Russia's very aggressive power close to Sweden, which might later on attack Sweden. Sweden and Russia have been in wars around 10 times. Most of the wars have been started by Sweden many years ago. And we lost yeah. Sweden. Yeah. Well, there was this Charles XII, who to historians was the first guy who invaded Russia. You know, Charles XII, then Napoleon, then Hitler, and all of them failed, right? Um, yes. And uh, Charles the Twelfth ended. Sweden was the dominant power in in the Scandinavia, and uh, he invaded Russia, and then it lost. Sweden lost everything basically, and um, it seems as if there's a lot of uh, worship of Charles the Twelfth in Swedish military circles. You know, they raise a glass to him and have these fantasies that they could do what he did. Um, but of course, they only take it up to the point of his victories over over Poland, I think, and in and early victories over Russia. And they never talk about his and Sweden's ultimate defeats. And um, I think there's this um, wrong narrative. I mean, in, in certain Swedish circles, I guess, military, perhaps higher business, perhaps in the royal circles, they think they're living, they're totally unrealistic in my view. They're young. And they're kind of live in a Sweden. They've, they've been damaged by peace. That's what a, a, a phrase I hear sometimes about Sweden, that war is like a game for them, a play acting or a video game or something that you read about in books. Um, but anyway, th there are legal attempts to do things. Um, clever people. There's a clever lawyer in Strasbourg, is it? Can you tell me about what he's trying to do to stop Sweden's accession to NATO in a legal way? Ulf Öberg. Yes, Ulf Öberg. Uh, he uh, uh, sort of analyzed the situation, and uh, uh, the the sort of say formal invitation or asking to be become a member of Sweden was done as an administrative measure, but according to the Swedish uh, constitution, it's not. Uh, Correct. Uh, it must first be a change in the constitution, which it was when Sweden joined the European Union Union 1995. His, uh, so to say, um, very clear uh, uh, reasoning from a legal, legal point of view, uh, uh, I think, has not been uh, met by uh, the earlier Swedish government or the current Swedish uh, uh, government. It's just put aside. I mean, uh, that, this is just one piece of the weakening of the Swedish democracy as also was the application for NATO membership. Let me, let me just add one thing here. In the, each year in January, there is... Uh, 
a large uh, conference about defense in Sweden. Uh, it took place uh, recently, 7th to 9th of January, and the Swedish Supreme Commander said that there is a risk of increased risk of, of war for Sweden, and the leading politicians didn't protest. Uh, I think he's right because a NATO membership and the DCA agreement places Sweden very clearly under. Uh, um, NATO and the United States. Sweden is then in a bigger war, uh, certainly <coughs> seen much more as a target for uh, uh, Russia if such a war uh, ever happens. So uh, the reason for the increased risk of war in Sweden is due to the policy politics of the current and of the, of the earlier socio-democratic uh, government. But it's not presented so. It's presented that that's due to Russians' aggression, and Russia is fully occupied. Isn't Russia with the war in Ukraine uh, by now? I don't think that Russia is a risk at all for Sweden. Sweden should uh, instead to try to normalize uh, the relation with Russia also, that would decrease the risk of war in Sweden. It would still, and we'll certainly try to have good relationship with NATO and the United States also. Well, it's That's interesting cool. because in the 1980s, um, Stockholm was a byword for, for, new, for a place where all sides could meet. On neutral ground and discuss things, and and, and uh, it was, Sweden was like a I don't know a mediation lawyer or something in the global conflict, the the marriage from hell that was the Cold War, if you like, as I see it. But now we have uh, new players in the world like uh, Turkey and um, and even um, and, and United Arab Emirates, which are more acting as brokers. I mean, there was that uh, peace agreement that uh, Boris Johnson torpedoed last year, 2022. And, and Austria, to some extent, and, and, and Hungary are playing a more object neutral role. But Sweden is totally lost in Norway. Mm. And um, I know a guy who works at the Peace Research Institute in Oslo, and he said there, there used to be Norway. Norway was like a little brother of Sweden and runs the same kind of policies. And now they're totally hawkish and they want to to spread transgender values or whatever to Afghanistan. And I think that's a good thing, you know, it's ridiculous liberal interventionism somehow. Um, so what, um, what do you think, just tell us a little bit about the spy law as well, because Sweden used to have very robust laws on free speech. Um, that's why Julian Assange wanted to come to Sweden. Uh, and then I think he was done in by some kind of honey trap, but, um, he was told by all his uh, pan, his global confrères in the dissident community that Sweden had the world's old, oldest press freedom law from 1766, but now you're saying in an earlier email to me that that's, that's changing. We'll, we'll wind up now. We'll just get your answer to this and, uh, and uh, tell us about this new spy law that can jail people. Yes, uh, it has changed. You mentioned Julian Assange. 
he and the Wikileaks uh, uh, published a video, for instance, from Iraq showing U.S. soldiers uh, shooting and killing civilians and laughing at the same time. And uh, he, as you said, was in uh, uh, Sweden, went to uh, Great uh, Britain. It was very clear that the United States went after him. He fled to, to Ecuador's embassy. And Sweden didn't go to, uh, so to say, um, the Swedish legal system to talk to him uh, for years. So he was more or less... Uh, in a kind of uh, uh, prison there. Now the situation is worse. He is as a hard security uh, jail in United Kingdom since almost five years. And United States wants to have him uh, to be tried. And there is... Uh, the threat that we will face 185 years uh, of prison. Uh, the United Nations special attorney about mental disease and uh, torture have found and published his uh, judgment in consultation with the psychiatrist that Julian Assange has been uh, has been uh, in the form of uh, mental torture by Sweden, United uh, Kingdom, and United Nations. That's uh, awful. Uh, yeah, there was another part. Can I just of, interrupt? Sweden was yes. a darling of the United Nations in the past, but now, now no longer. Now they're named by the United Nations, right? Do Do you think that Sweden was acting on orders from the UK not to talk to Assange in London? It's possible. Or it's mm. um, uh, e even uh, likely. An Italian journalist, uh, Stefania Maurizio, has written a book, a book about it and tried to get documents from the Swedish legal system about the Assange case. She has got a few, uh, much less than uh, is known to uh, exist. So we actually do not know, but there are reasons to, to suspect that this uh, is the case. His case, uh, Assange's case, will be decided in the United Kingdom on the 18th or 19th of February, if, he, uh, if they'll send him... Uh, to the United States and probably sent to jail for for the rest of his uh, life for publishing truth which are important for democracy anywhere. Right. Yeah. Can I just ask yeah. you a, a sort of final question, or it's a salacious yeah. question? Um, mm -hmm. I mean, so much has been written about this, but do you think Assange was subjected to honey trap? Uh, by those two women, or do you think he was a there was a genuine case there? Uh, uh, I, I, the, we don't have any information saying that was a, a honey shape. I mean, he two women um, were, were 
were very keen of coming into close personal contact with him, so to say, and they also have had sexual intercourse with him. That's, uh, so to say, public. Whether that they are, this was a hardship, not, it's not known because he was first only accused of sexual abuse. It's important information about uh, US wars and, uh, so to say, uh, other international affairs were put behind. Anders, we no, we're uh, end there. Yeah. Sorry. It was great having you on. And our next guest is a more positive on a pop. We're going to end this show on a more positive note. It was lovely to have you, Anders Gummelfra, the uh, chief Thank you editor of Global for, Politics in Sweden. This is TNT Radio. Here's a bushfire fact bushfires can occur without warning. So if you're traveling during bushfire season, here are three simple steps to remember. One, check the fire danger rating before you go. The higher the fire danger rating, the more dangerous the conditions. It may be safer to replan your trip. Two, think about the area you're going to and what you would do if a fire started. How would you escape the area if you needed to? And where would you go? Check if there's a neighborhood safer place. Three, it's dangerous to drive through smoke or fire. If you can't find a way to avoid the fire, park in a cleared area, face the car towards the fire, and turn the engine off. Then lie on the floor and cover yourself to protect yourself from radiant heat. Live bushfire ready. For more helpful tips, visit myfireplan.com.au today. I'm Naheem Hines, professional football player and proud supporter of the Muscular Dystrophy Association. My mom was diagnosed with muscular dystrophy when I was 14, and I watched her struggle. But MDA helped her get the best treatments and care, and they also help kids like my buddy Ethan. My name is Ethan, and I'm 12 years old. Thanks to the Muscular Dystrophy Association and people like you, I have more hope than ever before. From day one, they've treated me like family at my local care center. MDA is the only one that funds over 150 care centers across the U.S. to help provide state-of-the-art care for adults and kids like me. For over 70 years, MDA has been transforming the lives of people living with muscular dystrophy, ALS, and other related neuromuscular diseases. They fund the research for breakthrough treatments, care, and cures. And MDA provides support to thousands of families like mine and Ethan's in communities like yours. Thanks to MDA, kids and adults can live life to its fullest. Join us and learn more at MDA.org today. Deconstructing PSYOPs, propaganda, and mainstream media garbage. Pella Neuroth-Taylor on today's News Talk TNT. Yes, hello. After the last apocalyptic segment when we mentioned... Um, possible war between Russia and NATO, we're going to go on to something more lighthearted, death. No, no, seriously. Um, Patrick Linden is a, a former professor in, uh, in New York who's written a book about how we have to re-examine some of our philosophical attitude towards death in a way that's ultimately life-affirming. Patrick, can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, Patrick is... Uh, talking about death but it seems his microphone has died um so we think that they, they will be on stream quite soon um the book as i understand it is a sort of it, it's it changes 
the, the way I, I read it recently, uh, you, in the same way that you sometimes read feminist text, and they will convince you if, if you're of that disposition that everything you read in in white male literature is a kind of lie or a kind of power game, and that it allows you to have a superior or dismissive attitude towards it, and it's a comforting thing. I think Patrick's book gives you the same feeling in the sense that uh, what he says is that most literature and philosophy that we have today is kind of death affirming and um, we should therefore discard a lot of it as, as sort of trying to get us acquainted with the central fact of our existence in a way that we don't seek to strive longer lives when we should be. We could be living two, two or three times as, uh, as long as we do now. Um, and I think that the text um, has, the, has the effect of when you read Plato or Aristotle, um, you realize that they're actually kind of incredibly pessimistic. And I think uh, the, uh, Dr. Linden drew on a philosophy that's unfashionable, which is Nietzsche, uh, who was a philosopher of the body, and a philosopher who detested Christianity as basically trying to acquaint us with uh, basically us being too passive and not living our lives to the full sort of energetic, promiscuous, uh, active, violent extent. And uh, I said, we, we don't know, we don't, even if we're post-Christian, we don't realize how post-Christian we are or Christian we are in our morality until we read Nietzsche and some people are disgusted by him and some people feel they have a new lease of life. Hello. And I see Patrick's work. His his microphone Hello. has been resurrected from the dead. Um, Patrick, could, could you tell us a little bit about um, your book in a better way than I could possibly do? You're online now. Can you hear yeah, me? Yeah, we can hear you. Yes, we can oh, hear excellent. you. Okay, so yeah. Uh, that was actually a quite uh, nice introduction. Uh, yeah. So I wrote a book called The Case Against Death, where I lay out the arguments for why we should not accept death, but actually rebel against death. Uh, so this is, in fact, I think, uh, a quite rare thesis in the history of philosophy I discovered, because most of philosophy has really been about trying to find excuses on behalf of death and also on behalf of the way to death, namely the slow death we call aging. Yeah. So why then is death bad? Well, I thought the, the, the thing yeah. that got yeah. you, your, your, your moment of truth, your Kantian moment of realization or whatever, wasn't it when you lectured some of your teenage students and you asked them how long they wanted to live, even in a healthy state, and they didn't want to live that long? So you're saying, would you want to live 300 years? And they said, no, actually, I want to die at 70. And you thought, that's crazy, you know? Yeah, actually. So, so every time I taught this class called Death, Longevity and Values, I asked the students, how long would you ideally want to live? That is under the best of circumstances. And the average was about 85. That is most of them uh, would, you know, rather uh, not live much longer than 85. And, and that's even when I asked them to consider that they would have a decent health and everything. And then that struck me as, as really bizarre. And I asked them why. And uh, the reasons they came up with were really weak reasons, like that they would be bored or that there would be too many people on the planet and, and so on. 
So uh, these are, are, when you look at them closely, as I have now, uh, really, really bad arguments, and you hear them everywhere. It's as if people have these ready-made answers for why it would be better to be dead than alive after a kind of natural, normal lifespan. And it's not just my students, but it's also something that you see in surveys. So there was a survey in 2013 uh, in the United States, and there uh, about 70% wanted to to have a lifespan uh, no more than uh, somewhere between uh, um, uh, 79 and, and 100. That is, most people, the majority, want to die roughly when we are uh, uh, statistically quite likely to die. And I think the average was just below 90. Only 4% wanted to live longer than 120, which we consider to be uh, roughly the ceiling uh, for, for the natural lifespan. So there is something in our culture that tells people that it's a good thing to accept the natural lifespan and not want anything more than that. And, uh, well, uh, I, I disagree. I mean, I, I always seen death as kind of obviously a bad thing. And I always thought that we all want to live uh, for uh, as long as possible. But, you know, gathering from these answers, uh, there's something that holds people back. And so... I started studying attitudes and I found that there is a long tradition stretching back in philosophy of apologizing for death. That is, it's, it's a kind of apologetic for why death that might seem so terrible actually is either neutral or positive or something uh, that's, that's valuable in some way. And so uh, I uh, basically uh, analyze and see what are the, the arguments that they give for this position, and then I discuss them, and I find that n none of them are, are persuasive. So you, you, you're sort of declaring war on philosophy, most philosophy, and even Christianity, perhaps. And it's satisfying to read because most of us haven't read all the great philosophers and we feel a little bit guilty about it. And you're sort of saying, well, we don't have to read them because they're against your extended life. They're, it's a conspiracy against your right to live a healthy life for two or 300 years. Well, yeah, or longer. I mean, so I think ideally you want to have the, the freedom to live for as long as you find inter interest in life. And uh, you can't say how long that will be. So I think it's, uh, it's a quite uh, ill-formed question, how long do you want to live, ideally, because I don't know uh, how I would feel when I'm 150 or 200 and 300. It's quite ridiculous to now say how I will feel when I'm 300, you know, once I reach 300, you know, I, I will be a, a kind of changed person and, and, and I probably have things to do. Uh, that requires me to be alive. Um, so, yeah, no, well, I'm not declaring war on, on Christianity, absolutely not. I mean, in fact, I have more sympathy for uh, um, religions uh, such as Christianity with, a, with an afterlife belief, because at least that's acknowledging that there is, is something uh, terrible about uh, us first existing and then not exist, right? So, 
I, I do have a lot of sympathy for the afterlife belief, um, and uh, just because it it is it is life affirming, it's just not this life, this earthly life affirming. And I, and I think, given that uh, we can't really be sure if there's a continuation, it makes a lot of sense trying to continue this life that we have here. In fact, I think my my real ideological enemies are secular intellectuals who say this is the life we have, it's this life, it's all we have, and that's fine. That's yeah. terrible. That's a terrible yeah. view. And and often they back that up with other kind of pro-death or, or very pessimistic attitudes about this life. And so it becomes a kind of anti-life stance almost. And, and there I'm, I'm much more in the corner of people with more religious impulses who talk about, uh, you know, life as being, being sacred, right? You've teamed important. up with these um, technologists and billionaires who want to cry cryogenic their heads or whatever, <laughs> making it up now. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, they, 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 yeah. they uh, technologies increasingly make it po possible so it, uh, to live longer. And at some point, your argument is it's, it's, it's a psychology that's holding us back and our, worldview that's holding us back from pouring all our money into life extension, like the new Manhattan project, you know, or new moon landing project. Tell us a little yeah. bit about your, how, how you've um, reached out to these uh, yeah. billionaires. I mean, so, so people who are already, uh, you know, interested in, in, in cutting edge science and in thinking outside the box uh, will find it easier to, to rethink this necessity of, of aging and death within the natural lifespan. So they want to, uh, you know, break new ground and, and they, they're not afraid to go where other people haven't gone before. Now, it's a bit strange, I think, that we find ourselves in a culture where the weird people are the ones who's trying to keep us alive and healthy. Now, yeah. I also want to push back a little bit about this this billionaire narrative, uh, because yeah, it's it's true. Uh, some some billionaires like uh, Jeff Bezos, for example, uh, with Altos Labs, he has um, invested uh, some of his money, but we're talking about perhaps one or two percent of his net worth into this. Uh, and when you look at the, the, the about you know three thousand billionaires roughly in the world. And, and of them, very, very few. I think it's only one who's investing about half his worth in longevity science or geroscience. And, and uh, most of them don't. I think uh, if you look at the billionaires, they control about 10 trillion of, of the world's uh, worth. And, and they spend about, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a, a, an entrepreneur called Adam Grease who calculated that they spend about 10,000 of their resources on longevity science. So uh, most billionaires don't, in fact, very, very few of the billionaires right. do, which is to me uh, much, much more shocking then the normal headline, billionaires want to be immortal, which you see over and over again. It's, it's the same kind of article over and over again. Uh, and it's very unfortunate because it's not true at all. I mean, the shocking thing is they do, that billionaires do not want to invest to find ways to make us live longer. In fact, this whole notion of, of immortal and immortality 
is also some somewhat of a of a, a bad uh, concept because uh, I don't think in the physical world uh, it's possible for us to be immortal. I mean, at some point uh, something will happen <laughs> and we will uh, die. I mean, whether we uh, you know are biologically immortal, that is that we keep going like the sudden species of animals that can just keep going until something happens to them, right? Um, uh, uh, or if we even if we live in, in servers, right? <laughs> if we upload it, uh, something can happen to the servers sooner or later, right? So it, it's not immortality. Rather, what we want is the freedom uh, to live for as long as we, we can and, uh, and ex ex just expand that. It, it's a little bit like... Ooh. If if you look at the liberal project, it's one of emancipation, right? So uh, we we emancipate ourselves from various arbitrary limits, and I think the biggest kind of arbitrary limit on on our freedom is this aging thing and death thing. The um, would you agree that you you you'd like to create opinion for more? research spending on longevity. I mean, it's incredible. You can't be the richest person in the graveyard. And it's shocking that you've certainly overturned the belief I had, you know, the standard belief that billionaires are, are spending all their money on cryogenics or whatever, but they're not. So not even these people are doing it. Um, you said something about networked states. You're trying to um, create communities where these things are, where you can create legislation for longer living or something. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, the the thing with uh, anti-aging science or, or geroscience is that it's moving much too slow. Uh, my parents, my dad is in his 80s and my mother is in her late 70s. Uh, I don't have time to wait for 10 or 20 or 30 years. We need to speed this up. up. I mean, uh, people are dying as an effect of our inactivity on this front. And it's an absolute outrage. I think I, I looked at what uh, United States, what the, what the, what the uh, National Institute of Health and, and the, the kind of public spending that's related to this project. And it's about, you know, three, four hundred million a year, you know, which is what the United States spent in Afghanistan every day. <laughs> <laughs> so that's an incredible statistic, isn't it? Yes. So it's it's just a, it's an outrage, and so you'd like to change uh, opinion, and you'd like to see people calling for uh, research that can help them uh, be healthier and live longer. And be, because if the thing is this, right? There is an old paradigm, right, where we address each disease, and. The problem is there's so many things that go wrong with you as you age. You need to attack the root cause, aging. It's the efficient way, right? Um, Patrick, we we'll, yeah. uh, we'll have to end there. Let's yeah. hope you manage to create opinion for it. And I'm going to win the Hippie Award of the Month by saying if we could divert all our defense spending into longevity spending, um, the world might be a better place. This is Pelineros Taylor, TNT Radio. Thank you.